0: This episode of The Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you in part by Zycam. This winter, trust Zycam to knock out a cold the first sneeze of the season. Other cold medicines only mask symptoms, but Zycam is clinically proven to shorten colds when taken at the first sign. Not only is Zycam cold remedy safe and effective, but the nasal swabs are zinc-free, homeopathic, and allow for a gentle application in the nasal passages. You can find Zycam cold remedy products at all major retailers, including Walmart. Visit Zycam.com manliness to receive a $2 coupon on your next Zycam purchase. That's Zycam.com slash manliness to receive a $2 coupon on your next Zycam purchase. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Have you ever been heaped with praise, only to ignore it in favor of focusing on the lone piece of criticism you received? That's the power that bad things wield, and it's a power that humans need to learn how to both harness and mitigate. My guest today lays out both sides of that coin in his book that he co-authored with psychologist Roy Baumeister. His name is John Tierney, and the book is The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. We begin our conversation discussing how much stronger bad is than good and how many good things it takes to offset a single Bad one. We then dig into the implications of the fact that bad things have a much stronger impact than good ones, including how you really only need to be a good enough parent to your kids, the best way to deliver criticism to others, and why religions that emphasize hell have historically won more adherence than those that focus on heaven. We also talk about how negativity is contagious and why it's true that one bad apple can spoil a whole bunch. We end our conversation with a look at whether or not social media is a negative force in our lives and John's advice on how to not let those he calls the merchants of bad and the media make us think that things in the world are worse than they really are are lots of insights in this show on both how to use the power of bad to your advantage and overcome its negative effects after the show's over check out our show notes at aom.is slash power of all right john tierney welcome to the show
1: uh, thanks very much brett nice to be here
0: so you have co-written a book called The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. Your co-author is Roy F. Baumeister, who we've had him on the show before to discuss his work on willpower. And also he wrote a book about masculinity a while back ago.
1: Yeah, it's a great book.
0: It is, it is. Yeah. So this book is based on a paper that Roy did a couple of years ago called Bad is Stronger Than Good. Where did he get this hunch for this hypothesis that bad things... Are stronger than good things in our brain, at least.
1: Roy well, had been thinking about this for you know for a long time. In fact, you know, he, he kind of his first inkling of this came long, you know, decades earlier when he he was a young guy in a relationship with a woman who you know he had great times with her. She was wonderful in many ways, but she also had a real temper. And so, you know, at times he was he was really madly in love with her, and other times he was despairing. This is never going to work, and he didn't know what to do so he fell back on the classic stratagem of a of a social scientist he started collecting data and at the end of every day he would start he would write down uh, was this a good day or a bad day am i am i glad to be in this relationship today or am i or would i rather be out of it and he wasn't sure what he'd find and he, he kind of thought you know I've, i guess if there are at least four good days for every bad day then you know that would be good enough for me but he wasn't sure and, and if it was one to one you know, that, you know, that would be bad, you know, that yeah, I should get out of this. So he did it for about six months, and he found that after a while, the ratio remained steady. It was like two good days for every bad day. And this was kind of right in between his range. He, he didn't quite know what it meant, but so he didn't really uh, uh, reach any scientific reason he just he but in his gut he got out of the relationship and he just thought about this ratio you know which is now known as the positivity ratio, which is a number of good things for for every bad thing so he he thought about this a little bit and then you know in the eighties and nineties behavioral economists were uh, we're doing experiments in loss aversion, showing that people, you know, cared much more about losing money than they did about gaining money. You know, that it hurt much more to lose a dollar than it did, you know, than the joy of, of making a dollar. And there were some other experiments. Some psychologists had found that, uh, you know, that a bad first impression was much easier to get than uh, than a, uh, than a good first impression, and it was also tougher to lose. So he noticed a couple of these things. He wondered, you know, I wonder why bad things are stronger than good things. There. So he and some colleagues uh, looked into this, and they thought, uh, the way we'll do this is we'll try and find counterexamples. Let's find some examples where good things are stronger, and then we'll be able to figure out what, it, you know, what exactly is it that gives bad its greater power in some situations. And to their surprise, you know, you know, they looked through the literature in, you know, in psychology, sociology, anthropology, economics. They just could not find counterexamples. You know, bad was relentlessly strong. You know, the bad parenting, you know, made a big difference. Good parenting didn't really make that much difference. Bad health made a big difference in your life. Good health didn't make, you know, such a difference. You know, penalties, you know, a bad outcome motivated you more than a reward, a good outcome. So they put all this together and then wrote this paper called Bad is Stronger Than Good. And at the same time, another psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, Paul Rosen, uh, he was working on this from a different angle, and and but he'd also noticed this this same general pattern, and so this was something that it was this you know really important phenomenon about life that bad is stronger than good, but it really hadn't been noticed because it crossed into so many different fields, and and so they were the first uh, to put this together, and since then, it, you know, it's not it's now known as the negativity effect, also called negativity bias. And it's been studied, you know, there've been hundreds of papers, you know, studying this, confirming it, analyzing it, and, you know, figuring out what to do
0: about it. So let's talk about this ratio that Roy has found, as well as other people have found in other domains. Uh, Positive psychologists have found this, economists have found this. So this kind of gives an idea of, like, roughly... Not exactly, but roughly how much stronger bad is.
1: Well, there have been a bunch of different studies that, you know, they've looked, you know, you know, other people have done what Roy did. They, they've, you know, they've had people keep diaries and, um, every day and answer questions every day. And they, and they classify the day as a good day or a bad day. And they find that, you know, you know, that, that people tend to the you know, people who are doing you know who are doing okay tend to have three good days for every bad day and you know behavioral economists have done their own studies you, you know exactly how you know how many dollars do i have to offer you as a reward you know to get you to risk uh losing 1 dollar and you know the results range a little bit when you are talking about money people can be more rational and it you know there sometimes you know if you offer them 2 dollars you know they're willing to risk losing a dollar which in it it's itself irrational, of course, but 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 most cases, they've also done studies of, you know, they track workers' moods during the day and see how many good interactions they have, how many bad interactions, what's the impact of each one. They've also tracked, you know, they've looked at couples in the laboratory as they talk to each other and, and, and they measure the good things they say and the bad things they say and they, they actually, you know, measure their physical responses as they're talking to each other. And so, and what the studies show generally is that it usually takes three good things, to, you know, to have the impact of one bad thing. So we recommend the rule of four, which is if you want to do better than that, you know, you know, try to do at least four good things for every bad thing. So that, you know, that means that if you're late for one meeting, you're not going to make up for it by uh, by showing up early the next time. You got to do more than that. If you say, you know, one bad thing to someone, one hurtful thing, you know plan on do, saying at least four nice things to try and make up for that.
0: No, yeah, we've seen that. Uh, we talked about uh, relationships on the show, the five-to-one that Gottman, John Gottman, found, right? Yeah. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like arguments aren't going to kill a relationship, but you have to have five positive interactions with your partner f- to make up for that.
1: Right. They said five is, you know, that's kind of way above, you know, the norm. And, you know, and, and and, and I mean, the higher the positivity rates are generally the better. I mean, there are, in some studies, you know, when, when they've analyzed people's positive emotions and their feelings, they found some people just have sky high. They, you know, they claim to have no negative feelings. Everything's positive. And that's a bit deranged, you know, because, you know, those people are a bit manic, but in general, you know, you know, four, you know, five is even better than four. Usually, you know, the, now, the higher the positivity ratio, generally, the better it is because you know bad is stronger than good, but good can prevail by basically swamping bad with numbers. You overcome, you overwhelm it by force of numbers.
0: So why is bad stronger than good? Like, why do we have this negativity bias? I mean, we obviously we have it for a reason, right? It's adaptive, right? Our ancestors decided, right. oh, this actually is good for you to like focus on the negative more than the positive. So what's going on there?
1: Right. I- yeah, I, I mean, you're exactly right about it being adaptive. That on the ancient savannah, you know, the guys who sat around focusing on how great this berry tasted, you know, are not going to do as well as the guys who are more alert for, you know, let's make sure it's not poisonous. You know, let's watch out for that hungry lion out there. Basically, being alert, because it takes only one mistake to kill you. And so, you know, to pass on your genes, you know, the more vigilant you are, the more attention you pay to bad things the better chance that your genes will be passed on. And, and so, the, you know, therefore, it's really important. It's not so important to savor the, the great taste of a food, but it's really important to remember, you know, the, which foods are poisonous, which ones will, uh, will make you sick. So, you know, there's a real good adaptive reason for it, and it's still useful. I mean, one mistake can still really hurt I and mean, one mistake can still be fatal. One mistake can still, you know, ruin your career. You know, one bad step can ruin your reputation. So it is important and, and there are real benefits to this negativity bias because it does protect you. And also but the other reason that, you know, the bad really that this negativity bias evolved is that it teaches you. It's the best way to you know to learn. That you learn more from failure than from success. You know, when you succeed at something that goes great, but you don't learn a lot because everything went well. You know, when you get a bad mark on a test, when you fail something, it forces you to look at, you know, what went wrong, what did I do wrong, and to improve. And because the pain of failure is so great, you know, the pain of bad is so great, it motivates you to avoid that the next time. I don't want this to happen again. So there are real good reasons why it's there. And, you know, and and young people are especially susceptible to negativity bias. And this makes evolutionary sense, too. Because when you're young, that's when you really need to learn. You know, you've got to pay attention. You've got to look around at the world, figure out what you're doing wrong, and so you know, paying attention to the mistakes and to the bad stuff makes a lot of sense in that age. You know, teenagers are so, you know, so self-conscious. You know, they're 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 figuring their way in the world, and they're very attuned to any sort of bad thing that happens to them, any bad reactions they get.
0: Well, you said that this negativity bias is still adaptive in our modern world, but in any ways, is there any ways that it's sort of out of sync? with our modern environment.
1: It is. And and again the analogy back you know back to the ancient savannah, it was adaptive back then, you know, when food was scarce to, you know, you know, during lean times you should fatten up and eat as much as you can. So that was adaptive then. You know, but when you're surrounded by junk food all day long, you know, that's tempting you all day long, it's not so adaptive. And and so we end up with with this huge problem of obesity and from people eating too much and eating the wrong kinds of of food and so similarly today we are in a high bad environment we're just surrounded by by people all day long you you know on on television on our on our on our phones on on our many screens basically the, the merchants of bad we call them and they're tr- they're trying to scare you because they know the easiest way to get your attention on a screen is to is to appeal to that you know to something uh, is to scare you there's a crisis in the world there's you know, something, there's a danger to your life. Is your partner cheating on you? Five signs are doing that. You know, these, these ads that pop up on your screens. So we're surrounded by that all day long. And the news media, you know, I've been, I've been a journalist, you know, my whole adult life. And, I, and we're the worst at it. And, and it's one of the reasons that I got into this, because I, I was wondering, why do we constantly look for bad news? And why do we hype the bad news so much? You know, most trends are, in the world are, are positive. And yet, we can take the most positive trend and find one bad example, and that's what we write about. And it's a crisis, and you know. And so we're out to scare people. So in this high bad environment, we recommend going on a low bad diet. That you basically need to curate, in, you know, what you see and watch, and, and what you focus on, so that you don't get this distorted view of the world. It's like you know, don't gorge. You know, junk food is fine in in, in moderation, but you don't want to gorge on it, and you don't want to gorge on bad either.
0: And so what the rest of the book talks about is looking at this, the power of bad, this negativity effect on how we can use it, sort of harness it for our benefit, but also how to mitigate the downsides. And one area where you look at how you can use the bad effect to improve your life are relationships. So how do negative moments... That we experience in our life, how do they affect relationships? And if you want to improve a relationship, does it does it help more to increase positive experience or just eliminate the bad stuff? Well, uh, researchers have
1: you know have analyzed this by tracking couples over a long time. They'll you know they'll watch them when they when they meet and then see which relationships last and which ones don't, and they observe their behavior at different times. And what these studies show is that. It's the bad stuff that matters. That it's it's how you deal with negativity that matters. That you know the initial passion. You know you know how good you feel about it. You know that doesn't last, and that's not enough to, uh, to sustain a relationship. So, and the couples that are able to avoid negativity, the best thing you can do is avoid negativity by being sensitive to your partner and just watching out for things that bother them, even if that seems stupid to you. And also, you have to guard about the way that you look at your partner. You know, in relationships that last, people tend to develop what researchers call positive illusions about their partner. They they basically learned they trained themselves or they've got some knack for this for overlooking their partner's flaws. They have this unrealistic view of their partner. And and, and it's really helpful in a relationship. And the nice thing is is that after a while the partner at first doesn't really believe the same about themselves, but if they're, you know, if their partner really believes it, they come to see it themselves, and so you both feel better. There have been experiments, um, brain scanning experiments were fascinating where they tracked couples that, and they looked at the ones that broke up and the ones that stayed together, and when they, you know, went back and looked, you know, at their initial brain scans when these people were first in love, they found that the couples that stayed together the big difference and they weren't expecting this so it was a surprise to them they found that the couples that were destined for success the part of their brain that was that's involved in making negative judgment they tamped down the activity in that part of the brain when they, when they were shown a photograph of their beloved you know they basically their brains were just shutting down that negative judgment uh, when they looked at their partner now, I mean, all of us said that's not something you can just, you know, do, you know, you can't tell your brain to shut down there. But you can make more conscious efforts not to focus on your on your partner's flaws and, and to basically learn to give them the benefit of the doubt. One of the biggest mistakes people make, psychologists call it the fundamental attribution error, is that, you know if your partner shows up late for dinner and they and they tell you well i was i got delayed at the office the traffic was bad you can either attribute that to well yeah there were just circumstances beyond their control they couldn't help it you know and that's why they're late But what we often tend to do is think, no, you know, they're selfish. They don't care about me. They, you know, they don't mind keeping me waiting. They don't love me. And you tend to attribute this one bad thing, this this bad action, you attribute it to some permanent character flaw. And that's that's what's called the fundamental attribution error, which is something that was actually caused by temporary external circumstances we blame on their character. So we see, you know, a driver run a stop sign, and we think. Automatically, he's an awful driver. You know, whereas you know, sometimes if we make that same mistake, well, I just didn't see the stop sign was blocked by a tree. So, and and when couples have studied people's attributional style, as they call it, they found that couples who tend to immediately say, yeah, when something goes wrong, they say, yeah, that's just the way he is, just typical. They do that, you know, this is what drives me crazy about them. that The couples that do that are much more likely to break up. And the ones who are more likely to give their partner the benefit of the doubt to think, yeah, it was, you know, traffic was probably bad or it was just an unusually bad day at the office. I'm not going to blame them for it. And then, you know, the other thing is when something goes wrong, when they, you know, say something that bothers you, when they do something. We love the advice that Ruth Bader Ginsburg got from her mother-in-law on her wedding day. The mother-in-law told her, In every marriage, it sometimes helps to be a little deaf. You know, that basically being able to, you know, to ignore something bad that happened instead of getting angry and retaliating, that just goes a long way in reducing the negativity in a marriage. And now there are some things that you do have to respond to. I mean, you shouldn't be a doormat and let your partner run all over you, but. If you do respond, you know, it's really important to stay calm and don't retaliate, you know, don't sulk, you know, don't angrily retaliate, you know, don't accuse them of, you know, of being a bad person or make accusations. Just explain calmly why something bothers you and don't escalate the conflict because bad emotions are so powerful, they have so much impact, and they're so contagious that if you respond angrily, they're going to get even angrier and, and you just start this cycle of retaliation. And so a minor disagreement, you know, it, it just escalates to a major fight. You know, there've been interesting experiments, but they play a game called dictator where people have to decide how to divide up money and they take turns. And when one person starts behaving negatively, it just escalates, you know, and it just gets worse and worse. And and, and the people get angrier and angrier at each other and more and more selfish. So, basically got to try to avoid doing bad things, avoid over-interpreting things that your partner's done. And when things do go wrong, give them the benefit of the doubt, or at least stay calm and don't escalate.
0: Well, another area of life where we have relationships is with our kids. And parents these days are really anxious about if they're parenting right, if they're doing enough. So they get these books on how to raise you know resilient kids and how to get their kids be a star athlete or be do well in school and they pay for all this stuff. But your research in the book that you highlight says that probably isn't doing that much. And you'd be better off just being a good enough parent.
1: Yeah. The, I mean, this is some of the cheerier research, I think, really. Because what it shows is you don't have to kill yourself. You don't have to be the super parent. You don't have to be a tiger mom or a helicopter parent. Because you know this is, a, is an aspect of the negativity effect where bad parenting makes a big difference. Good parenting does not make that much difference. So as long as you're not neglectful, as long as you're not abusive, as long as you're not violent, your kid is going to turn out okay no matter what else you do, as long as you avoid the bad stuff. And and we base this, you know, these are studies about the effect of, of, the, of the home environment and the parents on kids' IQs. And what it shows is that a bad home environment can, you know, can really stop a, a child from reaching his full IQ but a good home environment you know you know, whether it's good or whether it's stellar you know whether the, they hire the best tutors and pay for the best schools that doesn't raise the child like you all you can really do is 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 avoid the bad stuff from happening so as long as you avoid the bad stuff, you know you don't have to go to every soccer game you don't have to help with every school project and so we advise people to be just a good enough parent just avoid the mistakes and that holds true for all kinds of of roles in life i mean you know be a good enough Spouse, be a good enough friend, be a good enough boss, be a good enough worker. You don't have to be a superstar. You don't have to go all these extra miles to do it. You just have to you should focus on avoiding the bad stuff. You know, there's there's interesting research about how much credit you get for doing extra. And there and this was inspired by a researcher who noticed that when stuff from Amazon arrived late, she was really irritated. But when it came early, she didn't, you know, feel particularly grateful. So they did a bunch of experiments where, where you know, uh, students would get, you know, somebody would promise to help someone solve puzzles. And if they didn't fulfill the number of puzzles that they helped uh, help with, it, you know, people really gave them bad marks. But if they did 50% extra, if they did extra work, they got very little extra credit. And, and there were some other experiments showing the same thing, that if people got tickets from a ticket broker that were worse than they were expected, they were furious. If the seats were better, then yeah be, you know they didn't really give the uh, the broker much extra credit so you don't you get relatively little extra credit for you know for doing more than you promised but if you fall short of what you promised then you pay a big price so just focus on not breaking promises not on on being the superstar parent or you know who does so much more than is
0: expected so yeah at work uh Manage expectations. Like under promise, over deliver. Don't over promise, and then under. Because people are going to remember that more.
1: Right, people just people remember the stuff you didn't. You know the promises you didn't keep. They remember the bad.
0: We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. It's January 2020. The year 2020 shows up in a lot of science fiction. A lot of people predicted that we'd be taking flying cars to work, living in space stations. A lot of those predictions were wrong. I'm still waiting for my hoverboard. The truth is, we'll always get the future wrong, which is why we need to get life insurance right. That's where Policy Genius can help. Policy Genius makes finding the right life insurance a breeze. In minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. You could save $1,500 or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policy. And once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape and... Policy Genius doesn't make life insurance easy. They can also help you find the right home and auto insurance or disability insurance, too. So if your science fiction dreams for 2020 still haven't become science fact, don't get discouraged. Get life insurance. It takes just a few minutes to find your best price and apply at policygenius.com. Policygenius.com. Policy Genius will always get the future wrong, but better get life insurance right. It's a new year. It's a perfect opportunity to take your business to the next level by hiring the right people. But finding qualified candidates can be challenging. You got to upload your jobs to different job sites. And then you have to review all those things and check all the emails and download the attachments or resumes. Fortunately, ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness makes it easy. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. They don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter... ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates, so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. So, if you are a small business owner or you're a hiring manager at a big company, got an offer for you right now. My listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address: ZipRecruiter.com/manliness. That's ZipRecruiter.com/manliness. M-A-N-L-I-N-E-S-S. ZipRecruiter.com/manliness for a free trial of ZipRecruiter. And now back to the show. So I think an area where we've all experienced the negativity bias or the negativity effect is when we receive criticism and it's painful. And it's even painful whenever someone says something good about like, even if other people are praising what you've done, like at work, whatever, there's like that one guy who says, you know, Hey, this could be better. That just re- that's the thing you focus on. And so we, tr- there's a tendency to like want to avoid criticism, but criticism is what lets us get better so are there any tactics that you and Roy came across where we can get the benefits of criticism without it stinging so much and where we just focus on it and become debilitated by it?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's two aspects of it. One of it, as far as it, it, on the receiving end, I, I mean, one bit of practical advice we offer. Uh, when I started writing, um, I was writing an op-ed column at the New York Times, and I'm kind of a libertarian, and the New York Times audience is not like that. And and another journalist who who had been a liberal writer at the Wall Street Journal editorial page, he was in the opposite position. You know, you know, he was he was writing for an audience of different. His one piece of advice to me was don't read the mail <laughs> you <know? laughs> because you're just gonna get excoriated. And and our advice is especially in dealing with online comments because people get this and they go through it. And as you say, the one bad comment, you get all these supportive comments, congratulations, good work, but one, there's one snarky thing and that's what stays with you. It's like writers read a review of a book whether it's a rave, but all they can think about is that one line faulting something in the book. So one bit of advice is if you can, you do want to learn from the criticism. You know, when you post something online and someone and people react to it, there may there there may well be something useful in in the response, but if you read the stuff yourself, you're just going to fixate on the bad stuff and get and it's it's debilitating, as you say. So, is have someone else read it for you, pick out the useful stuff, keep out the just the basically the, you know the the useless snarky stuff, and also try to follow that four to one ratio that, that you know that you know give you at least four good things for every bad thing. Now, you know when it comes to giving criticism, most of us are pretty bad at that, I think. And you know, psychologists have found in when, when they ask people how they like to give criticism, you know, if there's good news and bad news, most people would rather start with the good news. It's a lot more pleasant to start a conversation to tell someone that. And then, you know, so you say the nice things, you're doing a great job with this and you I like that. You did that well. Oh, and here's one area that I'm concerned about we need to work on. And and that's the easiest way to give the criticism is to start to ease into it and, and start out as Mr. Nice Guy. But most people, if you ask them how they'd like to receive good news and bad news, they would rather get the bad news first. And that that's actually the best way to deliver it. Because when you start out with a lot of praise for someone, they'll, you know, they're listening. But then when you hit them with that bitter criticism, it's, you know, the power of bad is so strong. It's just that jolt to the brain. And so, and the brain immediately focuses on that and it forgets the praise. You know, an example of this is, When a computer crashes, you know, the tech people say, well, what were you doing when the, you know, right before the computer crashed? And people often just can't remember at all what they were doing because that sudden awful thing, oh my God, the computer's crashed. You just forget what happened before that. You're just so focused on this new threat. And it's the same way when you get criticism, you forget the praise. So, and if you save the criticism for the end, then people walk out, that's all they remember. So it's, and and they're demoralized. So it's better to, I mean, you might start out with saying, you know, I mean, if you're evaluating an employee, you say, you know, you had a good year and we're looking forward to another good one. So they know they're not going to get fired, but basically get the bad stuff out of the way early. And then after you give the bad stuff, then their brains on high alert, you know, and then they'll start paying attention and remembering the good stuff. And, you know, you pivot from. The bad to the good. Try to do you know at least four good things for every bad thing, and try to look at things from a positive standpoint. You know, you say that you know, maybe you had trouble you know working with some people this year. You're working with a team, but you're great on your own. We're going to do more solo projects for you next year, and 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 look at and frame the criticism in a positive way that. This was a problem, but we're going to solve that by doing this
0: you know, the other way. So it sounds like you don't even do the criticism sandwich where you go positive, negative, positive. Just start negative, then end with four like increasing positive things.
1: Right. I mean, the, yeah, basically that's it, I think. I mean, that's the way to do it. Now, you also, and we cite some research in this, that you don't want them to... You know, walk out, you know, j- just only remembering the positive. And they really will remember the criticism, but it does help, you know, at the end to remind them a bit that we do have some things we have to improve. That So... I think, they, you know, get most of the criticism out of the way, then, you know, elaborate some praise on and then and end with reminders of how we're going to improve next year. So they're still motivated. You know, there's still that power of bad, to, you know, to motivate them to improve because, you know, that's what you need to improve is you need that motivation. And then there's nothing like like the negativity effect to motivate people.
0: Well, speaking of motivation, there's been a debate within psychology and managerial science on what's the best way to motivate employees, and you all see this in with family, with parents. What's the best way to motivate kids to do what you want them to do? And there's that age-old debate: is it sticks or carrots? And lately, it seems like it's more carrots, like you know, provide rewards, help people flourish. But you guys highlight research. No, sticks are actually more powerful than carrots.
1: Right. You know, the, that whole saying about the, you know, the carrot or the stick, it, it comes from, you know, there were these 19th century cartoons and there was, you know, advice for parents that, you know, the way to motivate a horse or donkey to go forward was you dangle a carrot in front of him instead of hitting him with a stick. And it was this little sort of parable to tell you that rewards work better. And you saying know, say in the book, did anyone ever see, you know, a horse winning the Kentucky Derby with a carrot in front of it, you know, the jockeys are using the whip. And and that's um so it, it in our interpretation of that of that parable of the carrot versus the stick is that people would rather use the carrot. It's you know, it's much more pleasant to do that than it is to you know, punishing people isn't fun unless you're a sadist. But in fact, you know, the stick is generally more effective. Uh, you know, there's a lot of research on this. Unfortunately this lesson got lost, especially with children and in schools, thanks to the self-esteem movement that you know we had, you know, the nineteen seventies and eighties. And now that was really one of the sorrier mistakes in psychology. Roy Baumeister, my co author, he did when he started his career, he was working on self-esteem and it looked like a promising area. And then he realized that the psychologists just had it backwards. You know, you know, they thought that well, because, you know, people who succeed have high self-esteem, if we can just boost kids' self-esteem, they'll succeed. And he realized that they had the causation backwards. When you succeed, that boosts your self-esteem. But when you boost someone's self-esteem, it doesn't help you succeed. There's, it doesn't work that way. So, but the consequences of that is this: everybody gets a trophy philosophy that evolved with kids. And, you know, nobody... Uh, nobody loses, and that has has translated into the education system where there's just been rampant grade inflation, both at the high school level and at the college level, where you know the average grade places is an A minus now. And as a result, you know, students at, in both high school and in college, they are learning less than they used to in the past. And there's some clever experiments. You know, there's a famous one with uh, young kids where they were given a series of tasks to learn. And, and some of the kids received a marble as a reward for every you know, right answer they did. And they would, you know, put the marble in a jar. And the other kids got a jar full of marbles and they took out a marble for each wrong answer. And the kids who had the marble taken out learned a lot faster than the kids who got the reward. So, and they found that in other examples where they've, you know, offered bonuses to teachers if their students, you know, did well that year and, and, and raised their test scores. But sometimes, and as a, control, as a comparison, They they told they gave some teachers the money ahead of time and said if your kids do not learn better this year we're going to take that bonus away so it was framed as a penalty rather than a year-end bonus and the and the teachers who faced that penalty their students did better than the ones who got the reward at the end so in general you know it's better penalties are stronger than rewards and. I mean, we're not against rewarding kids. I mean, you want to give you know a child bonus for every A and his report card, give them a reward for that fine. but I would also deduct money when they're slacking off and they're not doing well. And I think schools should really give honest grades instead of trying to make students feel better. They should when kids do bad in a class, they should get a bad grade because they're not going to learn otherwise.
0: I thought it was interesting that when in that chapter you talk about cares sticky, the interesting tidbit that you start off with was religion and that you highlight research that religions that focus on hell and damnation actually flourish more than the ones who just talk about heaven and angels and goodness and whatever.
1: Yeah. You know, it's a fascinating trend. I, I was, I was really intrigued by it. There's a, a sociologist of religion named Rodney Stark who has traced this? And you really see it in the history of religion in America, where you know, back back in colonial times, America was not a very religious place. I mean, you know, the Puritans and the early settlers have been very devout, but you know, people were. I think they had six drinks a day. There were more taverns in I think Boston than in you know, in Amsterdam, and and you know, the, lots of premarital sex, lots of illegitimate births, and then there was this great awakening that happened in the early 18th century, and and what happened was it was these these hell-fearing ministers went around preaching, you know, damnation. And, and Jonathan Edwards, you know, gave his famous sermon, you know, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. At that point, the, the established religions, you know, were the Anglican religion, the, you know, which became Episcopalianism and Presbyterianism. And they preached a more gentle, cerebral kind of religion. You know, their ministers went to Harvard and Yale, and some of them didn't particularly even believe in hell. But the Methodists, who were the, considered these uneducated rubes, and they were, you know, they, and they looked down very much by, by the religious establishment, the Methodists became the big, you know, the largest uh, religious denomination in the United States. And then they eventually... You know, they eventually went mainstream. You know, their ministers started going to seminaries. They started preaching a more benevolent message, and then they promptly faded. Where it was hell fearing Baptists and Catholics became the dominant ones. And then, when the Catholic Church, you know, in the Vatican, you know, II Council in the 1960s, they softened it. You know, you know, a lot of their things, and they suffered a big decline in membership. And so, you get. evangelicals and pentecostals rising so there is this thing that what gets people into the pews on sunday is fear of hell much more than the promise of a celestial reward and there's been some really interesting research that psychologists have done where they've looked at surveys around the world and they have found that in countries where more people believe in hell you know versus people who just believe in heaven in those countries, there's a lower crime rate, <laughs> and they did a very clever experiment in the lab once, where they 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 were giving students a test, and they told them that there was a glitch in the computer, and 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 that made it possible to cheat, but so but please don't do that. We're going to fix this glitch. So of course the the researchers are watching to see who cheats, and they found that, and then they saw who cheated and who didn't. And they found that what predicted it, it, didn't really matter if you were religious or not, didn't, you know, most of the other variables didn't matter, but what did matter was how you conceived of God. And if you thought of God as a more punishing, vengeful God, then you were less likely to cheat. You know, that hell is stronger than heaven, at least when it comes to deterring bad behavior.
0: Right, so yeah, another another example manifestation of the negativity effect. Yes, another place where people see it is on teams. This negativity effect, and the, the there's that you know Osmond song, "One Bad Apple Don't Spoil the yes. Whole Bunch." Girl, right. is I mean, is that true? Is Donny right, or does one bad apple actually spoil the whole bunch?
1: Well, yeah, well, the, you know the Osmonds. The whole meaning of that cliche changed because of that song. I mean, now it used to be one rotten apple spoils his companions, and that goes all the way back to Chaucer. Benjamin Franklin did it, and then the Osmonds came out with this song, "One Bad Apple Don't Spoil the Whole Bunch," which, in the first place, apples don't really grow in bunches, right? <laughs> 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 and and so the and, and so the the meaning of that cliche changed, where suddenly it was, you know. The, the one bad apple is not representative. And, you know, that, yeah, that something went wrong there, but that's just one bad. Every place will have a few bad apples. It doesn't mean the whole place is bad. But in fact, what the research shows is that negative behavior is, in fact, contagious. Bad apples do spoil their companions. And there have been interesting experiments where they've looked at, at people working in teams and, You know, the researchers thought that if you measure the average ability of the team members, that would predict how well the team works. But what actually predicted how well the team would work was the ability, the performance of the worst person on the team. Because one person, one bad apple brings down the whole team. You know, there were some really interesting experiments where they had people acting out different varieties. Researchers classify bad apples into several categories. There's, There's the jerk who's just kind of obnoxious to people and belittles them. There's the downer who's just depressed and, and convinced everything will, will turn out wrong. There's a slacker, somebody who doesn't pull his own weight. They had an actor to, to, to portray each of these types, and he would sit down with the group. And, and, you know, when he was a jerk, this was a bunch of business students who, who were supposed to be coming up with a, a strategy for a company. Uh, and so when he was a jerk, he'd sit there and somebody would suggest an idea, and he would say, have you ever taken a business course before? you know just really belittle them and when he was a slacker he just like put his head down on the you know he'd just sit sit back and 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 look at his phone and do it and then when he was a downer, he would just like look so sad he would he would get himself in in the mood for the role by by pretending his cat had died, <laughs> and he just put his head on the table and the interesting thing was that they found. You know, as they expected, the putting this one bad apple on the team would would hurt its performance. And that did indeed happen. But th- what really surprised the researchers was how contagious the behavior was. that you know that if they brought in the one jerk to work on the team, the other people started acting like jerks, too. And not just in retaliation against this one jerk, they started behaving badly toward each other. When there was one slacker in there pretty soon everyone was just oh whatever let's just get this over with they started slacking off too and when the downer was in there the other people would just start getting depressed too and they' go what's the point of this thing so it's it, you know that's it's, um, it's uh, this bad behavior is very contagious and it's it's more important when you're hiring people when you're assembling the team to avoid bad apples and get rid of them if you have to than it is to concentrate on hiring. The absolute best person. I mean, the power of bad is, it, it, you know, is so powerful that it's uh, that that's what what determines how well things will go.
0: so so a good enough employee might be like, yeah, that,
1: right, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's nice to get good ones, but you know, really, just you know, the, the bad apples are what will kill you. And and it's the, the same thing in business where. You know, it's the unhappy customers who can really do damage to you. You know, a one-star review hurts you much more than, you know, than a five-star review helps you. And, and, and so you need to really focus on, on avoiding unhappy customers. And, and that's more important than concentrating on the good ones. If you've got to focus, make sure to avoid those unhappy ones.
0: Well, let's end with talking about the place where a lot of people feel, and there's been a lot written about this, um, that increases our negativity bias or plays to it. And we, you alluded to it earlier, it's like the online world. First off, I mean, is that is it really true that like you see all these studies where you know being online increases things like depression, anxiety, loneliness, et cetera, And you know, people write about that and say you got to quit the internet because of this. Are those is that really true? Or are we is that a, a manifestation of our negativity bias?
1: I think that's a manifestation of, of of journalist negativity bias because, you know, I'd heard that too and I thought, yeah, maybe, you know, it does make sense. And in fact, when writing this book, I thought, well, this is another reason to write this book because we've got so much... Social media has just increased the problems of the negativity effect. And I saw the studies, you know, about Instagram envy and Facebook depression and, and you know, people saying that more time you spent, the worse it was. But then I started looking into it more. And what I found, you know, throughout my journalistic career, I've, I've always found, and we write in the book about what I call the crisis crisis, that we're constantly inventing crises, that when you look into things, you see that, you know, the scares don't pan out. And that was what I found about social media, too, that... Um, when people really looked at all the research when they did meta-analyses of different studies, they found that these, these, these problems like Facebook depression and Instagram envy were really overstated. That, yes, there are some people who, you know, who are affected. You, you know, you know, a woman who is, is really concerned about her own weight, her own body image, who spends a lot of time looking at these beautiful models on Instagram, that can you know, have some bad effects for her, But she already had that problem to begin with. And, 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 for most people, it doesn't have that bad effect. And, and, and what the research shows is that, you know, for most people, you know, for, you know, for young people worried about peer pressure, it's the people that they know in the real world that really matter to them. It is, you know, the online world isn't bringing in all this awful stuff. And the good news about social media is that people tend to be more positive on social media than the mass media is, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, I've been a journalist all my life and I'm what, you know, I call one of the merchants of bad because mass media, to attract a mass audience, you go for those common things that everyone responds to and most of them are bad. You know, it's easy to, you know, we're all afraid of dying. We're all afraid of getting sick. We're all afraid of being injured. So the easiest way to get a big audience to appeal to a lot of people instantly is to scare them with something, to, is, to, is to exploit that negativity effect whereas social media now there are people on social media who do that who are you know who 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 spread a lot of vitriol and we hear about all the flame wars and the vicious stuff that gets said on social media but that is not the norm and what's nice about social media is that it that it allows people to concentrate on positive things you know the positive stuff that interests us tends to be more idiosyncratic we don't all have the same taste you know if we're interested in science or history or Psychology, um, so it's not so easy to get a mass audience appealing to those positive interests. But social media lets you do that. You form your own group, and you know you, you find a website. You do that. I mean, you do podcasts. Like we're you know we're talking now for you know forty five minutes an hour about positive stuff mostly about how to make life better, and we're not scaring people about. Did you hear about the latest terrorist attack? Did you hear about the latest outrage that the other political party did? We're talking about. Science, you know, positive things, scientific research, and and how to make life better. And there's a, so much of that on social media. And there, and we cite in in the power of bad. We cite you know the research showing that people tend to spread positive things more than negative things on social media. Um, they share positive news stories. They they don't send a lot of pictures of playground massacres of their friends. They send beautiful pictures of nature. They share stories about you know new advances in science, new you know, new and uh, um, new books that they like, new theories that they've heard. Um, and there's there's research also that on Twitter, that people who tweet positively tend to get more followers and that positive tweets actually get spread more widely. Now, the negative tweets get retweeted very quickly, you know, more quickly. And you have that phenomenon where suddenly everyone's piling on something. There's this mass outrage. But in general... It's the positive stuff that travels farther, that gets retweeted more often. So, in that sense, uh, you know, we're hopeful about the future because I think as people learn to follow this low bad diet, if you curate your social media feed, if you go to the, you know, the right websites, if you follow the right people and 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 have the right friends, people who share positive stuff, if you follow that rule of four and try and get four uplifting things for every downer. Um, you'll get a much more accurate view of the world and i mean you'll see how much how much is going right in the world and, and 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 that's much better than than sitting around thinking that the world's going to hell you know one of the the saddest things that that i see today is that virtually every measure of human welfare is improving you know we are the luckiest people in history that there's never been a better time to be alive and yet the richer we get the healthier we get um the more gloomy we get about the world and it, it's it's very strange in international surveys when you ask people you know uh, how optimistic they are about the future. It is people in in rich countries like the United States who have it better than anyone else in history who are the most pessimistic, whereas people in poorer countries they you know they 're more realistic they realize how much life has gotten better uh, for them whereas the people in the united states we we have it so. Uh, we have it so good that we have time to, to basically think about it, to come up with all these first world problems and, and convince ourselves that, you know, that things are awful. You know, there's an old saying, no food, one problem, much food, many problems and we just have a luxury to worry about lots of things and and it's fine to worry about problems because when we address problems you know we come up with solutions but we need to keep our perspective that things are getting better for 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 most people in the world and there's a lot more good going on than bad
0: well john this has been a great conversation where can people go to learn more about the book and your work
1: um they can uh, the, uh, the book is called the power of bad how the negativity effect rules us and how we can rule it um it, it's by it's published by penguin press i've got a website john penguin random house has got a website for it and uh um uh, and i guess i'd have to say you know the book's available at uh at your bookstore and at amazon i hope people buy it and i, and I hope that you know people will use the book to to you know to to tam, you know to Harness the power of bad when it's useful and overcome it when it's not useful.
0: Well, John Tierney, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. My guest today was John Tierney. He's the co author of the book, The Power of Bad. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, johntierneynyc.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is/powerofbad. We can find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. <laughs> Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about personal finance, how to be a better husband, better father, physical fitness. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the One Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS to get a free month trial. Once you're signed up, you can download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. If you enjoy the show and you've got something out of it, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher whatever podcast player you use to listen helps out a lot and if you've done that already thank you please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it as always thank you for the continued support until next time this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the a podcast but put what you've heard into action